Ilya Sukar founded Parse in 2011 to make cloud services for mobile developers. Parse was a newer kind of cloud provider called Backend as a Service, and it was built to simplify the complexities of Amazon Web Services and the complexities of the mobile ecosystem. During this time, Facebook was in the middle of its shift towards becoming a mobile application company. Ads on the smartphone were not yet a proven business model for Facebook. So Facebook was exploring other business lines. Facebook decided to purchase Parse for $85 million with the intention of building a cloud developer platform. Shortly after the acquisition, Facebook's mobile ads business started to see considerable success. With the mobile ads business finding traction, Facebook shifted all of its available resources towards supporting that business model. Because, of course, it's very good to have a successful ads business, and you don't want to drop the ball there. In 2017, Parse was shut down. Ilya joins the show to give his experience starting Parse, and selling the company to Facebook, and then seeing the company that he had built get shut down, as it became an unfortunate casualty of Facebook's advertising success. We talked a lot about the experience of building a backend-as-a-service company, as well as what makes Facebook special as an organization, and how the success of Facebook's mobile business happened to, fortunately or unfortunately, coincide with the post-Parse acquisition life cycle of Parse the company. It's quite an interesting story about the dynamics of an acquisition, and Ilya was a fantastic guest. I hope you enjoy it. GitLab Commit is GitLab's inaugural community event. GitLab is changing how people think about tools and engineering best practices, and GitLab Commit in Brooklyn is a place for people to learn about the newest practices in DevOps and how tools and processes come together to improve the software development lifecycle. GitLab Commit is the official conference for GitLab. It's coming to Brooklyn, New York, September 17th, 2019. If you can make it to Brooklyn on September 17th, Mark your calendar for GitLab Commit and go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash commit. You can sign up with code COMMITSED, that's C-O-M-M-I-T-S-E-D, and save 30% on conference passes. If you're working in DevOps and you can make it to New York, it's a great opportunity to take a day away from the office. Your company will probably pay for it, and you get 30% off if you sign up with code COMMITSED. There are great speakers from Delta Airlines, Goldman Sachs, Northwestern Mutual, T-Mobile, and more. Check it out at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash commit and use code COMMITSED. Thank you to GitLab for being a sponsor. Ilya Sukar, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. You were the CEO and founder of Parse. Explain what Parse was. So Parse, in a sentence, made cloud services for mobile developers. We wanted to make it dramatically easier to spin up an app and get all the basic functionality, particularly on the back end, that every app needed at the time almost for free. So cloud storage, 
user accounts, analytics, push notifications, backend logic. We were trying to bridge the gap between the types of folks that were building you know, the new client-heavy native mobile apps in 2011 when we got started and the typical tools that people had on the back end, Rails, Django, whatnot, that were not really oriented to the challenges of the time. They didn't really integrate with the mobile SDKs, you know, Objective-C, the Android stack. And we're trying to bridge that gap with a set of cloud services and a set of heavy client SDKs. How did Parse compare to the other backend as a service products that we've seen over time? So when you think about the Heroku, Firebase, more recently, Zite, perhaps. How does Parse fit into that set of products? I think among those, we were the first to be mobile first and oriented around mobile. So kind of our North Star was you're an Objective-C developer, you're focused, say, on iOS, which is where we get started. You think mostly in terms of the front end. How do you very quickly plug in the back end? Whereas, you know, say Heroku, for example, was oriented around hosting Rails apps, hosting Django apps. And the premise was, you're already building that app, you're kind of in the Rails environment, but this is how to deploy it, how to make it, you know, reliable, scalable and whatnot. And so I think we were much more full stack, I would say, and we were much more opinionated about how to do things. We had our own kind of closed ecosystem, our own universe, so to speak. And we were very focused on mobile as sort of the entry point. We generalized beyond that as we grew, but I think none of the others started there. Some of them shifted their focus to mobile over time, but we started there. What were the difficulties of building on AWS back then? This was, I think, what, 2011? 2011, yeah. So, you know, imagine you're a mobile developer and you're primarily trying to build, say, a game. And most of your challenges at the time are, how do I build a beautiful app? How do I get the UX right? How do I do the transitions correctly? How do I, you know, this is 2011, so mobile is somewhat new. How do I really orient to this new ecosystem? And the back end for most of the apps at the time, and, you know, I would argue for most of the apps in the consumer app store today, is pretty simple. And so you think in terms of how do I store and retrieve structured data? How do I send out push notifications to my users? How do I do user accounts? How do I store data against those user accounts? And so I would argue our lens on this was AWS is just like an alien universe, right? You have to think about EC2, like an actual, you know, Linux machine. You have to spin up a database. You have to figure out how to make it reliable and scalable. You have to figure out all of the middleware you know, which at, at the time was getting, I guess, plugged by projects like Rails. But at the time, those projects had no strong opinions about how they should integrate with mobile. There was no objective CSDK that would basically handle the networking, the caching, the object model, you know, sort of the ORM in the client, tie it back to the back end. You had to interface with a bunch of stuff that really, you know, wasn't your core competency. And so... AWS was fine for people who were coming from, okay, how do I deploy my Rails app that interfaces well with, you know, clients that are web browsers. But if you were starting from mobile and backend was a means to an end, not your primary differentiator, I would argue it was just a alien universe that you didn't want to deal with. And was that the hardest set of engineering problems that you had to deal with? Was this the, the full stack 
developer experience integration API surface, or was it were there also backend scalability problems that exhibited more acute challenges? On our end? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's all of the above. I think we had to design an elegant system that abstracted away all of these challenges, sort of start the startup challenges from developers, all the maintenance challenges from developers, our customers. But yeah, we ourselves definitely dealt with a lot of scaling challenges. You know, when we sold the company to Facebook, we had somewhere between, say, 60 and 80,000 active developers, you know, through our height at Facebook, it went a couple of orders of magnitude higher than that. And so we definitely had a lot of challenges of, of scaling, dealing with all the different workloads, you know, on, on the on the platform. You know, we, for better or for worse, had Mongo as the primary data store underneath everything. And I think that was great because the Mongo data model exposed itself well in the various higher layers of our stack. But at the end of the day, Mongo is not an easy thing to scale, not an easy thing to isolate customers one from another, not an easy thing to, you know, manage massive indices. So we definitely had to innovate there and in some cases fail. Like what? what, what's hard about managing that? We had kind of the extreme version of multi-tenancy, right? So we were effectively munging together tens of thousands of developers on, you know, instances of Mongo where Mongo was not designed for that. We had a backend runtime that looked a lot like Node, where basically you could write snippets of backend logic, business logic that would integrate into our system you would get all the benefits of the integration with the client SDKs. You get all the benefits of integrating with the object model. You would get baked in stuff like, you know, semi-native Twilio support or whatnot. And you were just writing, you know, literally little snippets of functions at a time. This was a custom runtime that we built off of V8 because Node was very nascent when we got started and Node was not really oriented around, you know, the multi-tenancy we needed. And so that was challenging, right? It's like you have an open runtime that anyone can run anything on. How do you put boundaries on that? How do you scale that? How do you, you know, ensure that people don't mine crypto on it or don't, you know, we had some guy index, you know, try to pull FCC documents off government websites, you know, using us as a crawler. I became friends with him at some point, but I was like, dude, what are you doing? And so we were just, you know, an open platform or an open runtime. And so at every level of the stack, we had to face some pretty serious scaling challenges. Can you go deeper into the custom runtime built off of V8? Yeah. Just recap, why did you need to build that and what did that consist of? Sure. So maybe I'll give you this kind of the rough sequence. I probably won't remember this perfectly, the rough sequence of how we built the product. The very first version of the product was an iOS SDK where iOS developers can store and retrieve structured data. Basically, we'd serialize NS dictionaries, which is kind of the you know core object in Objective-C, should realize it down all the way down. So you wouldn't have to think about, you know, the network layer, you wouldn't think about the caching, you wouldn't think about the database, you wouldn't have to set up your schema ahead of time. So you could, you know, declare an object in Objective-C, we would kind of, you know, infer the schema, set up your tables for you, set up indices for you. It's pretty cool. And so that was kind of V1. On top of that, we added things like the notion of user accounts, you know, permissions, kind of fast forwarding, push notifications, some analytics. But at the end of the day, you don't want to do everything 
in the front end oriented way. You need some business logic to run on your back end, right? The type of code you would put into a Rails controller, let's say, where does that live? We didn't have a place for that, right? So if say you were an iOS game developer, you wanted to have a high scores list, at some point there needs to be some backend code that actually, you know, sorts and sends out the high score list. Otherwise every client would be relying on some raw version of it in the database. They could write to it any way they wanted. So we we had to build that layer. And so what we did was we kind of built a custom, we called it cloud code. In today's parlance, it would be a serverless environment where you don't think about servers, you don't think about scaling it, you're writing little snippets of JavaScript that you know interact with our object model, that interact with our SDKs, and you can do things like, you know, in that case, you know, compute the high scores list, push it back up to the client, or, you know, do something with data, send out an email, do something with data, send out a text message, that kind of thing. Were there any strategic decisions that you encountered at Parse that were particularly strange or unique? So from kind of the the bit more at the business layer, you've just given a good example of some, of a hard engineering problem you've had to solve. I'm, I'm wondering about the, the business and strategic decisions that you uh, had to make and what was unconventional. Uh, some of these things aren't, I think are not unconventional with today's eyes. I think back then maybe they were unconventional. We had a very bottoms-up approach to things. We shipped a very bare-bones product to start, and I think we differentiated by having a really keen ear for the customer, iterating quickly, and kind of over-delivering on support. And so, and over-delivering on, on, on really the value you got for the price you paid. We had a very generous free tier. The vast majority of folks never paid us anything. And I think that got us a widespread brand. It got us a lot of developer love. It really got us a lot of projects that got started on Parse. I mean, even today, every week I meet people who are like, ah, I don't use Parse anymore because I can't, but I got started on Parse. My, my startup exists because Parse was there at the right time. This presented a number of challenges as we grew. One is it's just very hard to provide the same level of service as you grow. So you know, it's easy to answer the first few hundred emails that are asking for help. And some of the help is more or less debugging their app, their code, as opposed to their integration with our code, kind of over-delivered on that kind of stuff. Yeah, at a certain point, you need to make money. And I think we're not the best at squeezing out all the value we could, but we did an okay job at this. I think kind of in our pre-Facebook days, we made money off of a couple of types of apps. One was game developers. So I, I kind of start there, and I don't think a lot of people know this, but there was a pretty vibrant scene, you know, on the mobile app stores in those years of, you know, smallish game developers making decent money, getting to real scale, sort of lots of, you know, hit one hit wonders, maybe to some extent. But we made a fair fair amount of money catering to them because they had pretty simple backend needs. They were staffed full of folks that were very client oriented, and you know the, there was a lot of product market fit there. We also made a good amount of money catering to creative agencies that were building these, you know, fairly thin apps for their clients. So places like Home Depot or the NFL or 
my favorite was Sesame Street. They were like, they were very polished, nice apps. They weren't, you know, complex logically. And you could argue that some of them weren't used that widely, although some were. The Sesame app, Sesame Street app was popular. And again, we we did a good job catering to them because there's good product market fit. You know, their backend needs were not that complex. Their scale wasn't that high, but they really need to move quickly. And the more stuff they could not do that wasn't core to their value prop to their clients, the better. And we were able to, you know, give them a bunch of niceties that traditional backends wouldn't. So we had a nice GUI. I forgot to talk about this, but a nice kind of GUI interface for, for interacting with all of your data your database, you know, kind of your push notification system, your analytics. And so teams in the agency or on the client side, product manager could log in and change some strings around, could send out some push notifications, could, you know, change the price of an item, that kind of thing in a way that didn't require, you know, going into a shell or dropping down to a real database. And lastly, we had a fair amount of startups that got started and got to some real scale. But nonetheless, we definitely struggled with kind of the strategy, the pricing around being this bottoms up, anyone can get started thing, how to keep keep the service from a reliability and infrastructure perspective, you know, great from customer support thing, great, customer support angle, great, while not, you know, jacking up the prices on people to the extent that they wouldn't get started on Parse and they would go through the slog of spinning up AWS because it was cheaper. When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call on to help me find a developer who can build the first version of my product. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile engineers who you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product, like me, or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent that you need to accomplish your goals. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i to learn more about what G2i has to offer. We've also done several shows with the people who run G2i, Gabe Greenberg and the rest of his team. These are engineers who know about the React ecosystem, about the mobile ecosystem, about GraphQL, React Native... They know their stuff, and they run a great organization. In my personal experience, G2i has linked me up with experienced engineers that can fit my budget, and the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works. They can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack, and you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com G2i to learn more about G2i. Thank you to G2i for being a great supporter of Software Engineering Daily, both as listeners and also as people who have contributed code that have helped me out in my projects. So if you want to get some additional help for your engineering projects, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i. When did the talks of acquisition begin and what was that like i mean you you must have been fielding acquisition offers from different people tell me about managing the different offers and how you balanced that with operating the actual company yeah 
I think the acquisition talks came in various flavors at various times. With Facebook, you know, in particular, we actually had kind of two rounds of discussions. You know, the latter round converted, obviously. But the first round came probably a year prior and was different. The first time around, they were interested in us, I think, only for the talent. You know, the, the set of folks on the team who I think at the time were pretty, you know, world-class in mobile development and sort of the architecture around mobile and, and its interface with, you know, typical back-end systems. And so they were going through their own mobile transition, and you've talked to many of the relevant folks on your on your podcast who are, many of them are now my friends that I met through Facebook. The first time around, it was basically like, what you've got here is cool. We don't really care about it. What we care about is what you've learned along the way you know, what you know about mobile developers and the ecosystem and how they're doing things, how you guys have architected things, come work on kind of our mobile transition. And I have to say that was cool to have that conversation. It was cool to meet everyone. Brett Taylor was still in the company. We met Zuck through that. We met a bunch of people. But we said no because we were excited about what we were doing. We were growing very quickly. I think at the time we had just raised our Series A or we were just about to. One way or another, things were going fine. We are just excited about what we were doing. And a lot of these challenges that I talk about hadn't, you know, really come to to a head. And there were a number of companies that around the same time, a little bit later, a little bit earlier, came around with roughly the same proposition, which is you guys have built a good team. You seem to know what you're doing in this mobile ecosystem. It's all nascent. Maybe we don't have as many of those people come join our team. This was a somewhat common, you know, pattern in Silicon Valley, I think, at the time. I think it's much less common these days because I think, you know, companies are having less of a hard time recruiting. I think the acute pain points around certain technologies are no longer there, although arguably maybe it's still happening in, like, machine learning and, so to speak, AI. Anyway, so this was a pattern. We talked to just about every big tech company, but we were not interested in that. The Facebook thing came around again much later, and it took a different form. It was like, we like what you've continued to do here. We have a bunch of strategic you know, questions on our end in our platform business. Come more or less continue doing what you're doing. Keep the brand, keep the service up, keep your team together. Let's build an AWS-like business with your brand, your starting point, your mobile focus. You know, it's not going to be quite as expansive as AWS, but let's start there and leverage Facebook's data centers, capital, people, brands, you know, all those things to do do it better. You know, obviously it didn't come to fruition, but that was super exciting. I mean, we, we were always hoping to build something like AWS just at a different abstraction level with a different ethos, with a different focus. And yeah, it was hard as an independent company, especially at the time. The venture funding market for what we were doing was not terrible, but not as good as it is today. People are very dubious about the value proposition that developer experience matters, that the whole look and feel of the product matters, that all the integration points matter, that API design is a differentiator, that you can build services on top of the basic building blocks that AWS and others offer and extract margin off of that. There's lots of companies we can talk about that are doing that today, have raised tons of money, doing fine. But at the time, when we were fundraising, we we did okay, and we we could have raised another round. 
And in fact, at the time, we had Series B term sheets when we sold the company, but the venture market was, kind of, in short, not really having it. You know, they wanted to push us in a different direction. They wouldn't give us as much money as we wanted. And so when we had these conversations with Facebook, it's like, oh, that's really exciting. And it could be a huge accelerator. And it was for a couple of years, but, you know, maybe, maybe on to the next question. But the proposition at the time was really cool. To move quickly towards something I'm, I'm really curious about, why didn't the acquisition work out in the ideal way that it it could have potentially manifested in? Yeah, I wish I had a perfect answer here. I think it would have saved me a lot of stress and sleepless nights. I think fundamentally the company moved on. It's hard to say exactly when, but I think all of the kind of let's say underpinnings of doing the deal and investing, you know, resources and headcount and all that into Parse, I think somewhat became irrelevant over the time we were there. And so to set the context, and this is from my point of view, I think if you asked other people, they might have different answers. And I don't think there's any one truth here. But from my point of view, when we sold the company, the platform team at Facebook had a little bit of an existential situation on their hands. The whole company had not yet done the transition to mobile. Like the mobile apps were getting better, but when we got there, there were no ads in the newsfeed at all on mobile. So that was a big question in the stock market. You know, the the company had IPO'd and the stock was down a ton. You know, at the time of the deal, I think it was at 25. So there's a big sort of strategic question overall of is Facebook going to make the transition to mobile? And then the platform team specifically, you know, this is kind of rewinding a while, but platform team the real way it contributed you know core value to the company was through the desktop gaming platform that facebook powered right zynga you know all the generation of flash games that people are playing on facebook i don't know if you remember that yeah yeah they made a lot of money off of that right because they had an app store model they would provide the distribution and kind of the the, the sort of farmville right yeah i don't know what the breakdown was between Farmville and the rest of the ecosystem. I'm sure there were other contributors, but Farmville was a big one. I think Candy Crush was on there. You know, there's a lot of serious traffic going through that. And so they were taking a tax, much like, you know, Apple and Google do these days on the payments for virtual goods that were flowing through the platform. That was not going to transition to mobile because Apple and Google control the app stores there and they control the distribution, they control the payments there. And so that business, which... I don't remember what percentage of the business it was, but it was really not not insignificant. It was a big chunk of the overall revenue of the company. That business was going to do fine for years, but it wasn't going to grow because everything was transitioning to mobile. And it was obviously sort of on a glide path down because it, you can't redo that in the mobile ecosystem. So to recap, the company had an overall strategic question of, are we going to make the transition to mobile? The platform team had an overall question of, what are we going to do? We were one of the experiments, I think. At least this was kind of how they pitched it to us was, you know, we have all these developers. We have obviously data centers. We have technology that's really interesting. How can we build a different kind of developer-oriented business that will, you know, in our case, monetize infrastructure, APIs, databases, that kind of thing. But they had other experiments, some of which did really well. So the app install ads that you probably see in your Facebook newsfeed, 
those killed it and they killed it with a small team and they did great. And so, you know, two or three years into the experiment, obviously the company had made the mobile transition and then some overall, right? The stock was up a ton, printing money, newsfeed working great, newsfeed ads working great, app install ads working great for the platform team. And so no matter how well we did, no matter how much, you know, developer love we had, how many apps we had, how many users of those apps we had, how much revenue we were making at the end of the day, it's really hard to compete with a really well-oiled ad business. Ad businesses are very efficient, very, very efficient. And so some of the conversations I had with Zuck, with Mike Fernal, with other people, you know, I think no one really wanted to say it outright, but at the end of the day, you know, they could give us an engineer to toil away on scaling Mongo and transitioning Mongo to Tau or any number of really cool engineering projects we had to make our service better. But that engineer put toward ad targeting, put toward, you know, the core business at that time was just a way better deal. And I can't really argue with that. And maybe other people have different explanations for why it didn't quite work. You know, maybe our execution could have been better. Maybe, you know, Facebook's heart wasn't ever in it. But I think the most fundamental explanation is that kind of two years into it, let's say, Facebook didn't really need Parse. Okay, so business-wise, that's obviously valid. Like, let's go all in on the thing that's working. And let's just double down on that because because ads business is so good. This is not a direct mapping, but I sometimes think about Amazon Fresh and how Amazon just, like, never gives up on Amazon Fresh. And maybe Amazon Fresh is a great business. I have no idea. But to me, it seems like they've always struggled with that business, but they've always kept up the long-term view that someday we're going to need to do groceries and we need to have this ongoing thing, the grocery experiment. We're just going to allocate resources continually to it. I mean, today, Facebook has an entire team working on React, is it something about the the just the expected value of having an ads business working that they were starting to see where they were like, we need to go all in on this. We can't even spare five to ten engineers to maintain this developer platform. And when you think about it from kind of a CEO's eye view, do you think it was the right capital allocation move to make or you just think it was a valid capital allocation move to make? There's a lot here. To, to answer your concrete question, I think it was a valid allocation to make. I don't think it was long-term the right one. I think people don't quite appreciate that, that Facebook is, is a very different company than Amazon or, say, Google, both of which I think are much better at having these kind of skunk works, you know, give 20 engineers to a, to a team over there and leave them alone for a couple of years projects. Facebook doesn't really have a good history of doing that. You know, someone once described this to me, I don't know if it totally holds water, but Facebook has this core kind of rocket of like this, this newsfeed. And the newsfeed is a very flexible system. I mean, maybe this is less relevant in today's world, but certainly at the time, newsfeed is, is a very flexible system growing quickly. You can kind of put any number of experiments into that architecture and see what users like and what sells ads. And I think Facebook made a key decision of let's 
try things, if they don't take off quickly, let's walk away from them. And I think Facebook's core strength, Zuck's management orientation, certainly at the time I was there, is every six months, let's have a few priorities. Let's reorient the company around those priorities. Let's shuffle teams. Let's blow up the world. Let's leave a lot of messes behind us. But let's always be super focused on those things and be very intellectually honest about where the leverage is in the system. And I think there's a lot of advantages to that. It's worked. Like, it's, it's hard to argue with. But I don't think the company is that good at having kind of these innovative off to the side teams that don't fit on the same timelines, don't fit on the same user expectations, don't have the same revenue model. It's just different. During that time, when you were starting to see the writing on the wall, were you able to depersonalize that process of Parse getting moved to a lesser priority within the company, or did did it hurt? Did, Did you feel it personally? It hurt a lot. Now I think I have a pretty detached view of it, and I think I'm comfortable with everything. And, you know, at the end of the day, the whole thing did change my life. It changed the life of my co-founders. It changed the life of a lot of our employees who all did really well. We worked on cool stuff. So it's, it's hard to really be upset about it. But at the time, yeah, it was just brutally painful. Because just if you took us in isolation, if you took, you know, our growth, how much developers loved us, how much they were using us, how much we had more and more examples of apps growing up on the platform and sticking with the platform and doing well on the platform. Like, sort of just if you had lopped us off, just cut us off and made us an independent company again, I think we'd be a very strong startup. And so it was really painful to like just have it all be put into this relative, you know, internal market of priorities at Facebook and realize that. Yeah, maybe it's not the highest priority, but it's the thing that I really loved working on, the thing that I was sort of personally enmeshed with. So yeah, it was it was painful. It was it was tough for me. Did you did you like push to try to get them to change their minds or did you just like kind of go along with it or Yeah, totally. I mean, I think I took the brunt of the kind of battles to keep it top of mind, to get it resourced correctly, to keep it going you know it's all gradual right you know maybe in the first six months there were inklings of weird kind of misset expectations in terms of what folks were asking me and the rest of the team to do that didn't seem to align with kind of the core premise of the acquisition but for the first couple of years i would say we were pretty well resourced and we were left alone like we were shipping stuff we were growing quickly we were presenting our product at F8. We were definitely benefiting from the scale of Facebook. I was in charge of a lot of other platform products at Facebook, and I was able to sort of, you know, bridge that gap in a lot of ways. And I think we were helping some of the platform efforts pretty meaningfully with our expertise in terms of building good APIs and thinking about stability and backwards compatibility and, you know, just generally rubbing off well, I think, on the rest of the platform organization of Facebook. But, you know, at a certain point, we weren't getting as many engineers as we wanted. It was sort of obvious that, you know, Zuck's mind had moved on to, like, Oculus and WhatsApp. And, you know, a lot of our efforts to transition some of our technology to, like, 
you know, a better version powered by Facebook core technology. So what, what would Parse be like if the fundamental underlying data model and underlying database was not Mongo, but it was Facebook's Tau? And what would it be like if we weren't tied to like our super custom version of, you know, effectively a node runtime, but we like could take advantage of all the cool container stuff going on inside the company, outside the company and offer sort of that cool serverless thing in any language or maybe a broader set of languages. We had a bunch of cool stuff happening. Like what if we could really move to Facebook data centers and change the economics of how we charged for things because we weren't paying the AWS tax. Lots of cool stuff was happening, but like became pretty clear that people were less and less and less excited about it, but there wasn't any one moment. And so I would say, I, you know, you can ask anyone on the team. I fought pretty hard until I kind of burned out. Man, I still want that. Could, can you go back to Facebook? Can you be like, <laughs> Mark, let's put the band back together? <laughs> I, do, I do think so. It's funny. I, I, th- I don't think I would go back to Facebook, but I do think there is a need for something like Paris in today's ecosystem. Because I think if you look at from the perspective of a client-heavy development team that just needs kind of the basic fundamentals of CRUD backends or, you know, even more complicated things than that. I don't know. I think we've kind of backslid from certainly the days of Parse, and we've definitely backslid from the days of like Rails and Django, I think. You know, the React ecosystem has done amazing wonders for JavaScript on the client side, but I think the node backend ecosystem is super fragmented. There isn't like this Rails omakase view of like, here's how you do it up and down the stack and it all works nicely together and you define your model in one place and it has all these ripple effects and it just like happens. It feels like when I spin up a side project today, it feels like I'm making you know a dozen architectural decisions about stuff that doesn't really matter. Like none of my projects are going to differentiate on how they you know, lay out their schema in the database or how they do migrations in the database or how they do, you know, serialization to and from the client. But like the average developer has to think about that still today. And I think it's crazy. And they have to think about it across a bunch of these, you know, slices up and down the stack that are changing all the time. Everyone's got their own next new thing. They're not coordinated around any particular philosophy or taste or API design. So I do think something is necessary, you know. Firebase was started, I think, the same year as Parse. Yeah. Were you watching Firebase out of the corner of your eye, or was their service, like, very different than Parse back then? Because now it's like that's they're very strongly branded as, like, a back-end as a service. And, totally, yeah. And they, I, I think, to some extent, they do fulfill some of the omakase kind of stuff that you're describing. That's fair. Yeah, I think they've done a really nice job there. Yeah, totally. You know, it's funny, a lot of, well, a fair amount of ex-Parse people actually work on Firebase at Google. Oh. Yeah. So there's been a kind of a cultural intermingling there, and I certainly wouldn't take credit for anything Firebase is doing. I think those guys have done a really good job there. But um, philosophically, they, I think they converged in a lot of ways, which, which is great. I do think they've done a good job. And back in the day, it was pretty different. So first of all, I think those guys were working on something entirely different kind of in our YC batch. And then they had, I think, a similar maybe philosophical approach to what they wanted to do. But, you know, we were laser focused on mobile, native mobile, like the heavy clients that were just coming to kind of the forefront of things. You know, people forget that there was a whole wave of like HTML5 janky 
mobile stuff where people tried to build this sort of halfway point between the web world and the mobile world. So we were focused on that. The Firebase guys, as I recall, were really focused on like real-time web. They, they really thought that web apps were going to get much more real-time and that they were going to power kind of this architectural revolution in that ecosystem. So they're very web browser focused, very focused on, you know, I don't exactly remember how it worked, but holding open sockets and doing live updates on queries, really focused on like lightning fast passing, message passing. So you could build like real-time chat and other experiences, real-time gaming in a web world, which I think was really cool. I don't think the web actually, you know, turned much more real-time than it was before. And I don't think the breadth of things that benefited from all that real-time stuff was that large, but they were kind of on the same philosophy. And I think over time moved back around to more of a generic architecture, more of a mobile oriented architecture. And yeah, the things did converge kind of once we were, you know, we were at Facebook, they were at Google, I think more or less converged to the same ethos. So I don't want the entire, we won't spend like that much more time on, on the parse Facebook stuff, but the, I'm, I, I am a little bit curious about the winding down process because I think it got turned into kind of an open source project, but it's still a hosted thing. And then you eventually left. Can you just tell me about like the winding down and, you know, how you figured out, you know, the best plan to, to go through that process? Yeah, I will say I, I left once this kind of this ball got rolling. I was quite burned out and I, 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 I didn't want to expend more energy kind of managing it down. But my co-founder, Kevin, did a really remarkable job leading that effort. And, you know, in the end, I think it was the cleanest way to do it. So basically, he built a open source version of Parse, which was not really the it's not like we really open sourced the fundamental true code base because by then it had become pretty entangled with various Facebook services. It was never designed to be open source, you know, so it just wasn't really uh, possible to, to, to truly, truly open source it. But he did a good job of basically spinning up a, you know, sort of a clean room version of Parse that could be open sourced. And they worked on it for, you know, almost a year, I think. And in that time, you know, gave notice, told developers what was going to happen, tried to work, actually successfully worked with a number of cloud providers to have sort of a hosted version of the open source thing available so that people could migrate onto. And I think a bunch of cloud providers, you know, AWS, Microsoft, others, you know, smaller ones too, were pretty eager to cooperate there because it was like free flow developers. I mean, it was a pretty significant footprint at that point. So yeah, that's what happened. They, they did a pretty good job of it. You know, in the end, it was painful for sure, but it was a pretty lengthy transition, about a year. And the open source project is actually pretty pretty vibrant still. None of the core parts people are involved, but there's a set of people who, you know, had built their businesses on parts and who were still invested in it and wanted to keep that going. And there's maintainers and there's releases and there's a whole thing. ProsperOps is a platform for automatically managing reserved instances on AWS. Reserved instances are one of the most powerful tools to reduce your cloud bill, where AWS gives you discounts of up to 75% in exchange for a term commitment. 
you don't have to change your app or AWS environment to use reserved instances, so your savings start immediately. However, using reserved instances can be both complicated to figure out and time-consuming to manage. ProsperOps simplifies that complexity by using algorithms to build and manage a reserved instance portfolio that maximizes your savings even as your EC2 footprint changes. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash prosperops and get a free reserved instance savings analysis. ProsperOps can more than pay for itself with the savings that it can generate. So check out softwareengineeringdaily.com slash prosperops and save time and money with ProsperOps Reserved Instance Management. Thank you to ProsperOps for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. So you've been part of three acquisitions. What general reflections do you have about software company acquisitions? What makes an acquisition successful or or unsuccessful and i i mean you could apart from the the, the facebook one i think that, that that was pretty interesting edge case that you that you described there or maybe that's not an edge case i don't know you could just tell me what your reflections on acquisitions are yeah i think they are more likely to succeed when the distance between the acquirer's product and the acquiree's product is minimal when the business model distance is minimal. And so you look at something like Instagram, and we you know, we were probably a year behind Instagram. So we did get to see a lot of their journey at Facebook. And, you know, obviously that worked tremendously well. And credit to those teams and, and certainly don't want to discount that. But at the end of the day, you know, it's a social product. It had a feed. It had, you know, all the same challenges, all the same leverage points, all the same, you know, organizational needs. And so it was more about a question of did users love the product as opposed to like, you know, the challenges of integrating teams and the challenges of different cultures and the challenges of different, you know, demands and business models and all that stuff. And so I do think, you know, you either need to acquire stuff that you can plug in pretty quickly and give a lot of leverage to and just kind of fit into the mold or you need to acquire stuff and really let it, you know, let it alone for years and have a very clear understanding of what are the KPIs, what is success, and have kind of a minimal interface between the organizations. You know, like, like good API design, right? Minimal surface area, very clear contracts, you know, give people the room to have their own complexity internally. And I don't know if there's that many examples of that working in the ecosystem. I do think the average acquisition doesn't really bear that much fruit. There's obviously great standouts, but it's tough. One thing I totally, totally underappreciated is just the machinations of like a big company, right? When you're selling your company as a CEO, you hear kind of the strategy as it is in that moment, and you are interfacing with people in power in that moment. But the reality is like, Companies go through reorgs. People leave the company. You know, the company shifts strategy. And I think, you know, acquired startups are often kind of roadkill in those in those changes. And I think unless you've worked in a big company in a fairly senior position, you probably don't know what you're getting into 
when you sell your company. I certainly had not worked at a big company in a senior position. I mostly worked at startups prior. And so when I talk to people these days, and this happens quite a bit, about whether or not they should sell their company, I really recommend they figure out which parts of kind of the underlying premise behind the acquisition are enduring and which could frankly change in three months based on whether the VP sponsor, you know, hits his numbers, leaves the company, gets sort of battlefield promoted to a different priority. Like they could just be roadkill in that transition. And it is a small set of things that, that matter at the end of the day. Facebook is not the only large, scalable, highly distinct culture that you've become pretty aware of. And, and To be clear, I, I like Facebook in many ways. Oh, I, I, yeah. had, I had a good time there. I've made a ton of friends Great. there. The economic impact of our acquisition was tremendous. So I, I don't want to sound like I... Uh, I don't think you, you... Yeah. I don't think you've come off that way. You've also spent a lot of time with Y Combinator. Yeah. And Y Combinator is interesting because I think I don't know much about the internal culture at Y Combinator. It's clearly very strong and very distinct. But Y Combinator is an organization that scales. Like they've scaled. They con- yeah. will continue to scale. Their opportunities for scalability are are tremendous. And it's kind of like, you know, it's it's a different model for scalability, it seems. It's it's like like I can't really map Y Combinator to the innovations of Facebook or the innovations of Google or Amazon or something. When you think about scalable innovation, what reflections do you have on on Y Combinator, and perhaps you know even in in contrast or uh, in comparison to the other innovation models that we're more familiar with, like the Facebook model, which you've contrasted with the the kind of Amazon or the Google model? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think the best analog for what YC does is higher education, right? I think they have built a remarkable brand around accelerating already very high potential people and teams and kind of visions have kind of developed a curriculum around what, you know, irrespective of whether you're a biology company or a, you know, battery company or just a regular old SaaS company, they've developed a curriculum of sort of standard practices, best practices, startup wisdom, mentorship that, you know, generalizes. And they do that, you know, twice a year with many hundreds of people. And I think the the thing that I think maybe is counterintuitive about it is that it does scale in that there is this kind of general set of principles, this general way of doing things, general way of thinking about growth in your company, how to measure yourself in that early stage, how to talk to investors, you know, sort of these fundamental startup principles that, you know, any partner at YC, you know, after a little bit kind of internalizes and starts to sort of become part of the hive mind and, and, you know, imbue into, you know, all of the startups that they work with. And so it is unique in the sense that they don't necessarily need to innovate the organization that much. I mean, they have, they've done a lot of interesting things. They've gone later stage, they've added, you know, research arm, this and that, but kind of the core of what YC does feels very much the same as it did, you know, in the Paul Graham era when it felt like more of a family business. It's just that his 
worldview and his approach to all of this turns out to be pretty universal, which is, which is partially by design, partially, I think it just kind of happened to keep going. And so I don't know, it's hard to compare and contrast to like companies building products, but I do think YC is an enduring institution that doesn't have a lot of threats coming its way as long as it can continue to scale just the fundamental day-to-day things. And a lot of that is software, right? I think relative to the average investment vehicle, YC has, you know, a bazillion times more software powering all of this, smart people powering this, engineers powering this, which is, you know, very rare in the in the world of investing. Do you think they're a kind of aggressive well maybe this was deliberate, maybe not, but I mean they've gone they've had three fantastic CEOs. Michael Seibel's CEO now, right? Yeah. But it's like they've gotten rid of the the God King mentality, right? Like because they have moved even in time really good times, they've moved through three different CEOs. So there's no like you have key man risk in some of these other companies like Facebook and, you know, Amazon, maybe, you know, we don't know. I mean, probably these are super enduring institutions as well, but like you kind of prove that it's an enduring institution very early on when you have multiple successful CEOs. Yeah, that's a fair point. I don't know how to attribute that, but I, I definitely think about it in terms of, you know, like Harvard, like who's the president of Harvard? I honestly don't True. know now. Yeah. And it probably doesn't matter who probably it was two years ago. And it doesn't matter who it's going to be 30 years from now. Right. You know, I, I do think all of the people that have been involved have been, you know, people who kind of grew up in the ecosystem. Right. So Sam, Seibel, Jeff maybe didn't grow up in it, but he's been part of it for a very long time. And so there is something, uh, and it's, hard, it's, it's, it's sort of intangible, but there is this sort of ethos, this like, you know, desire to do right by the startup ecosystem, the founders, to do the right thing and to like optimize for the success of the companies that I think is pretty fundamental to being, you know, an influential person in the YC ecosystem. And so, you know, keeping that as, as kind of the, the bar has helped, right? I think... I definitely look at my approach to my career and, and, you know, my social group and who I like to work with these days, how I approach this investing business today. A lot of it's influenced by, you know, Paul Graham's worldview, and it's not to be discounted. I'd like to talk a little bit about the current fundraising environment, the VC environment and the investment landscape that you focus on. You obviously have a lot of experience in developer tools what are the the biggest sectors in developer tooling the the areas with the most acute problems that you find yourself very focused on these days i think i've been looking for something that can be summarized as parse for machine learning for a very long time you know machine learning has become an integral part to a lot of products, businesses, approaches to to new things. And I think it is very much the Wild West in terms of how to get the leverage of it without like all of the nitty gritty headache, you know, putting aside the science, putting aside the math, the actual tuning of features and building models, just like the wrangling of the data, the hosting of the models, the like training cycles, the whole sort of stack up and down. I think it's super messy and 
doesn't have great best practices and everyone kind of reinvents the wheel. And there's just lots of projects where their actual models are like not that sophisticated or not that differentiated, but like all of the infrastructure they have to build around them just bogs everyone down. And it's just like this monstrosity of maintenance and engineering. And so I've been looking for interesting companies up and down that stack. I haven't actually found many it's a challenge. A lot of the startups that I think enter that world and try to build kind of an elegant tool or framework or host a service or whatever, get bogged down with like consulting and services because a lot of the people who engage with them aren't even really ready to consume something well-packaged and well-defined. They really just need help with like, you know, what kind of models should we build? What kind of challenges can we solve with this? How good is it? So people get bogged down in these kind of services businesses that one day hope to be, you know, the next great platform. But anyway, that's that's an area I, th- I found really interesting. We were talking about this earlier. I think the world of data infrastructure more generically is really interesting. So, you know, what what happens now that we have these big cloud data warehouses like Snowflake, Redshift, BigQuery that are really scalable, really cheap, reliable, you know, what can you do with data once you centralize your data there? You know, first you have to centralize your data. One of the companies I've invested in is called Fivetran, which is really interesting. It has an elegant, you know, maybe parse-like approach to that. But then what can you do with that data, right? What kinds of BI tools can you build on top of that? What kind of operational tooling can you build on top of that? I think it's just kind of an interesting change in the world. It hasn't really been internalized yet. So those are two of the areas that I think are interesting today. The point you made about companies that often they can end up feeling like services businesses that are hoping for a time when their services business turns into a like a more of a product or a self-serve kind of thing. How do you differentiate between a company that is going to be in that state forever, like that's going to be in the service like kind of like yeah, we're helping you integrate your data infrastructure and we've kind of got this tool and you know, we're hoping this tool turns into the self-service thing. How do you differentiate between the ones that are going to be in the services business for a long time versus the ones that aren't? And I guess more importantly, is that even relevant? Like Pivotal is still kind of in the services business, but I think it's a pretty good business, right? Like, I don't know. Does that does that factor into your to your investing theses? Yeah, I mean, I think there are lots of services heavy businesses that in the absolute are really good businesses and you know maybe if I were investing my own money still I would I would want to be a part of but you know we're looking for venture scale businesses and I think to get the types of outcomes the types of margins that I think are expected it's tough to have a heavy services mix it's tough to scale it right you're fundamentally you know bound by smart headcount in this case some of the most expensive headcount that exists in our ecosystem right if you're, you know, a machine learning consultancy, like how many people can you retain that aren't good enough to be hired by like a product company that can get leverage off of machine learning? So there's just all these, you know, incentive mismatches that I think are tough. In terms of how to think about it, I don't know. I mean, I think you really have to have judgment around, you know, what part of the stack the team is tackling, whether that's an important part of the stack and can be built off of or whether it's like one small piece in a long chain of stuff and they're going to get bogged down and kind of integrating the other parts of the chain talking to customers helps a lot so 
you know, sometimes you can't do this because it's a seed investment and they're just getting started. But for the Series A's, typically there's at least, you know, half a dozen customers you can go talk to. And it helps to understand the journey of how they have engaged with the, the company, how much of the value they're getting are, you know, is, is from the product, the platform aspect of it versus the expertise that is layered on top of it, how that's changed over time, you know, kind of the, I don't know, I, I was diligencing a company recently and I thought it was pretty interesting, but I talked to some of their customers and, you know, at the end of the day, I heard, you know, from a few of them, it was like, oh yeah, it was great. They solved my problem for me. I learned about the value of machine learning from them. And, you know, when I dug into it, like, okay, how, how's the product, you know, really working for you? You know, what's the next step here? You know, I heard things like, oh, yeah, it works pretty well, but I think I've realized I can hire machine learning people myself and I'm going to be able to blend that with my expertise of my business domain that sits in-house. And at the end of the day, all they were doing was stringing together open source anyway. And so I can string together open source in my world. And so when you really, I mean, it doesn't come out that easily, but when you peel back the onion on some of these things, that's the fundamental truth. And, you know, some people still make progress out of that and sometimes it's unavoidable, but I think you have to be careful. Last question. If you had to leave venture right now and start a company, what would you start? Interesting. I try not to have have that answer top of mind because then it, it sometimes becomes <laughs> you know it's sort of cognitive especially, dissonance well especially because you're coding on the side you're gonna be like oh maybe i'll just try this thing yeah then, oh, let's uh, just integrate stripe and why not and oh no it's taking off so i think this is not super unique but i find kind of the resurgence of activity excitement funding around like horizontal productivity and collaboration tools to be really cool like you know it's you see things like Notion, Airtable, Retool. I think these are these are a category of companies that I think are very cool, something I get excited about. And I think I have some ideas that I'll probably keep to myself, you know, in terms of kind of what can be built maybe in the gaps between those products or taking those products as a premise. But I think that category of stuff is really cool to me and I like funding it. So I've worked with a number of companies in that ecosystem. One is called Brabla, which is like visual programming for everyday kind of business people that are good at Excel or Google Sheets, but not ever gonna write a Python script. But I think that's a cool ecosystem. And part of me wants to maybe redo some of the parse journey, but part of me is like, uh, it's, <laughs> it's, you know, it's in the past, let it, let it lie and hope someone kind of picks that idea up again and runs with it. Okay, Ilya, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking. Thank you. Podsheets is an open-source podcast hosting platform. We are building Podsheets with the learnings from Software Engineering Daily, and our goal is to be the best place to host and monetize your podcast. If you've been thinking about starting a podcast, check out podsheets.com. We believe the best solution to podcasting will be open-source, and we had a previous episode of Software Engineering Daily where we discussed the open-source vision for Podsheets. We're in the early days of podcasting, and there's never been a better time to start a podcast. We will help you through the hurdles of starting a podcast on Podsheets, 
And we're already working on tools to help you with the complex process of finding advertisers for your podcast and working with the ads in your podcast. These are problems that we have encountered in Software Engineering Daily. We know them intimately, and we would love to help you get started with your podcast. You can check out podsheets.com to get started as a podcaster today. Podcasting is as easy as blogging. If you've written a blog post, you can start a podcast. We'll help you through the process, and you can reach us at any time by emailing help at podsheets.com. We also have multiple other ways of getting in touch on Podsheets. Podsheets is an open-source podcast hosting platform, and I hope you start a podcast because I'm still running out of content to listen to. Start a podcast on podsheets.com. Podsheets.com.